We were shooting a circus panic scene in the great circus mystery. Hank, a big black cat, was to be performing on a high wire when the big tent would suddenly start collapsing, an effect we'd been working hard on. As the collapse came, the spectators would panic. The animals would stampede, and Hank would apparently do a death fall from the high wire to the sawdust, 50 feet below. Thus, a wildly exciting scene would be achieved, crammed with Hollywood realism. As it turned out, it was too realistic for both Hank and Charlie the Elephant. As I related earlier, Charlie seemed to have an almost human mind inside that massive head. We'd worked together so much, I actually felt closer to him than to many of the actors. Once, Charlie had killed a man, but few blamed him for it. It had been one of the trainers at Universal. A nice enough guy, I guess, but the wrong man for training animals. He lacked the inexhaustible patience that is the first requisite for animal trainers. But now, several years later, disaster was about to strike. We had Charlie with us as we started to shoot the final sequence, which included the faked collapse of the big tent, a faked fire breaking out, the ensuing faked panic among the fake spectators, and finally the fake stampede of the fake animals. The stampede was to be faked in the fake cutting room, for to actually panic fake animals could be disastrous. Well, like the best laid fake plans, something miscarried through some fake miscalculation, helped along by a sudden storm that blew up, the big top really did start collapsing, and a real panic started. To make matters worse, the real smudge pot man, thinking it was the fake collapse, began filling the tent with smoke to get the fire effect. Charlie, frightened, trumpeted and ran. We tried to stop him, but it was no use. He had definitely panicked. Now everybody was dashing about, trying to get out. Men were shouting orders, women were screaming, the smoke was getting thicker, visibility was practically zero. This all frightened Charlie even more than he, and he went char charging blindly through the smoke-filled big top. He knocked over some of the tent poles and more of the canvas came down. More screams and suddenly the people stampeded, knocking one another down and trampling each other in the wild rush to find the exits. I was trying to fight my way through to where Hank was lying unconscious near the center ring. He'd been knocked out by a glancing blow from one of the tent poles that came crashing down, knocking him off the high wire. I was within a dozen feet of him when the terrified Charlie came trumpeting out of the smoke. The unconscious Hank was directly in his path. Even in his panic, I saw Charlie endeavor to avoid him. He broke his stride and tried to change his direction, but it was too late. His huge rear hoof dragged over Hank, breaking his neck. Hank never knew what hit him. Hank, by the way, was a human being and not a black cat. I'm, I'm sorry. It was a mu uh, no, it says another of the black cats. Oh, I see. Black cat. The black cats were stuntmen. They were not animals. Yeah, uh, usually we uh, yeah. stuntmen. So they won't let us act in a movie. We right? stunted because we never got any good food when we were growing up. That's, That's right. way. And we smoked yeah. too much, too. That's right. Smoking those smudge pots. That's right. All right yeah. so Hank, smudge pot is the only stuff we can get. We're so poor. Right. Hank, one of the black cats, was killed by Charlie the Elephant. Now, uh... uh Charlie finally blundered into an exit, Mr. lumbering Nixon, out. Beak over there on the other page. I'm it. trying to do my best, yeah. and ran trumpeting down the street towards the zoo. Get back home. And everything will be all right again. Mrs. Murphy, the wife of the head trainer, heard the screams and the trumpeting. Okay, you guys, come on. Dancing out into the street. In front of the front Fortunately, she was a friend. He slowed down. She spoke quickly and calmly to him, and in a matter of moments had him under control. I don't know. He gladly followed her back to the zoo where she locked him up. The following week, Charlie was tried for murder. I know that sounds idiotic, but sometimes people are idiotic. 
He wasn't at the trial, and he couldn't defend himself, but there were lots of pleas in his behalf, mine as well as many others, for Charlie had a lot of friends. We said it was obvious that this was purely an accident. Charlie had worked faithfully in more than a hundred pictures. He was a kind and sensitive animal. He tried to avoid hurting Hank, all this and more. But we were only wasting our breath. Charlie was a two-time loser, and they couldn't risk a third killing. So poor Charlie the Elephant was condemned to death. We went back to the lot where many of the boys broke out the bottles, and that was one of the few times in my life I was tempted. Had I been a drinking man, I'm sure I'd have gotten roaring drunk. Charlie's skeleton was sent to a museum and his brain to a medical school for study. Thus, even after death, Charlie the Elephant continued to serve mankind, even though mankind had betrayed him. Did you call? Oh, I, I recognize that one. I recognize that one. That was a uh, Falk Wolf, a 11K long range heavy bomber. It was You're right! Now look out! Yeah. I don't yeah, see why we should talk about this either. Let's yeah. talk about something entirely pleasant. Okay. Off all of those trips. Okay. Don't even talk about Hugh Hefner and the 119 Associates flying over our house. Well, you can big talk baby? About. Talk about Big Baby, sure. Who's oh, Big Baby, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Big well, David and I and David Grimm and a couple people were sitting in David Grimm's house. Uh, no, you were down at your place, right? You were down with Tiny Below. Huddled in the bomb shelter. Right. <laughs> and all of a sudden, man, a we looked... B-A-L-M, bomb. <laughs> we looked out the window, baby, and we saw this huge, what I thought was a commercial airliner, take a bank I have never seen. Didn't burn it, just took it. Just this huge bank right in front of the house with another plane. Looked like it was fueling it beneath it. And I thought it was going to run right into the house. I was scared. And David came up after that happened. David Osmond came up and said he called the federal, what, what'd you do? If I called the federal aviation uh, agency and talked to the duty officer. And the duty officer duly... <laughs> who was in the can. Right. <laughs> doing his duty. <laughs> duly uh, or dutifully took my, uh, my complaint and explained to me that, uh, that uh, the, large, the larger of the two airplanes was a DC-9. And that the smaller of the two was a Learjet. And then I took that information upstairs, along with the interesting fact that the larger plane was owned by Hugh Hefner. Okay, so we're sitting down with this information, and all of a sudden, I swear to God, over the treetops, like 300 feet above our feet, because came two planes, they looked like fighter bombers from El Toro, wingtip to wingtip, right over our house, man. So fast, so scary, I thought, well, it's, it's a show of power. Nixon's decided the revolution starting in Isla Vista that's going to keep the town down. It's cool. And um, I was really so angry, I went down and I called the Federal uh, Aviation Administration. I called them like this. Hello, this is uh, Peter Bergman of the 11th Fellowship Parkway. Over. The guy said, uh, oh, hello, this is uh, Duty Officer Ron Buckmaster. Uh, you calling from your car? I said, this is car radio. I talked like this while asking him who those planes belong to. Over. And uh, he told me that one belonged to Hugh Hefner and that the other was a Learjet and he didn't have the number on the Learjet. And I said, I'd sure like to get that information. Over. Could you call me? So he called me back. I was at David's house by then, so I didn't talk over my car radio anymore. <laughs> he told me that, uh, yes, the Learjet had taken off from Burbank Airport, and that the Learjet was owned by a group called 119 Associates. I said, how did you find out? He said, oh, I have my ways. I called the airport. <laughs> he was really interested, right? He was, not, he was no integrated, bendable community worker. He was a brave man. So I said, well, that's very interesting, and I'm going to talk, talk about it. And he called me back again, and he said, I just wanted you to know 
that the people who owned it are called 119 Associates because the serial number of the Learjet is 119. And I said, well, listen, man, how low is it can somebody legally fly over my house? Which is, we might add, 720 feet above sea level. He said 1,000 feet. I said, wait a minute, no matter how big or how fast you're going, you can legally go anywhere in the United States at 1,000 feet? He said, yep. I said, 1,000 feet above real terrain or sea level? He said, well, it's supposed to be above real terrain. And I said, I said, well, can a plane change its altitude from 100 feet to 700 feet in half a mile? Because that's how quickly the land goes up where I live. And he said, no, that'd be impossible. I said, that's right. He was 300 feet over my head, about a football field, going 300 miles an hour, wingtip to wingtip, with a Learjet that turned out to be taking his picture. Hefner's plane had a picture being taken against the lights of Los Angeles, because now it's up for lease. That's right. That's why our valley was endangered. And I just want Mr. Weiss and Mr. Epstein, who own the Learjet, there in Mr. Washington, D.C. Mr. Mr. 119. Yeah, Mr. 119. Right. And Mr. Hugh <laughs> to stop flying their big plane <laughs> to my house, or I'm going to get a rifle and some black pajamas and some literature. Go to sleep and read. I'm going to sleep and read. While mouth sleeps, the National Guard is awake. <laughs> <laughs>